Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss. I am delighted to be joined by Nate Silver, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, God, talk about a, a renaissance man, Nate. We've got poker professional. We've got website founder of what became one of the most popular websites predicting uh, political outcomes. We've got uh, baseball quant. We've got best-selling author. Is there anything I'm missing, Nate? It all seems embarrassing. No, I, I, you know, I don't feel like I'm that well-rounded at all. So, but I appreciate, I appreciate the, uh, the praise for sure. Well, yeah, there's definitely an overlap uh, in terms of skill set with a lot of these entities, but I'm also incorrect. I mean, you should have corrected me right there. I was missing something. Uh, I forgot to say Substack proprietor of what is now one of my favorite favorite substacks, the uh, Silver Bulletin, and uh, I will embarrass you further. I will give you yet more praise right now, Nate, and I apologize <laughs> for doing that, but it's given me everything I want, this substack. It's got topics yeah. where I know going in that I'm interested in it, and I can't wait to read about it, but then it's, it also has these subjects where I wouldn't ordinarily dive in. I don't know much about poker. But because I trust you as a writer, um, I'm very intrigued when you talk about your first person experience at the World Series of Poker. And it's it's just been great, man. I, I really appreciate what you're doing right now. I appreciate it, man. People should uh, subscribe. It is free for now, but like I want to be able to upsell you later on. That's the mm. not so secret motivation. Um, and also Substack, it's very organic and kind of like a slow burn writing a newsletter where like people open up those emails at a very high rate. Right. And they kind of share it mm -hmm. and talk about it. It's like not the quick adrenaline rush you get from like posting something where you're driving traffic from Twitter or Facebook. Right. It kind of like can build for a couple of days and you get really good discussions going. Um, and yeah, like you said, Ethan, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm giving people like little different pieces of myself and like, uh, so there's some politics, there's some sports, there's some poker, there's some media criticism, right. There's some, weird snippets of my life kind of stuff. Um, and kind of not apologizing for it. I mean, that's what I love about blogs from back in the day or the newsletter format. I think it's important um, to have interests that are not just the field that you cover, right? I think it's very helpful mm -hmm. if you cover politics to have friends, to have life experience also in things that are not just like politics and vice versa. If I go play in a poker tournament, um, the fact that's not my life, right? It's a part of my life, but it's not my life means I can kind of like give a hundred percent when it's appropriate to do so, but kind of have perspective and go home to like lots of other good things going on. So, so that type of like, you know, the older you get, I mean, getting older sucks in a lot of ways, but you do develop a more kind of unique signature as a person with like interest and experience that only you have had. And in middle age here, I guess, trying to lean into that a little bit with the, with the newsletter. What are the political predilections of poker players? I, I, I find myself curious as you mentioned that. Um, you know, how would they skew? How would you map that one out? Um, so the main thing about poker players is that they are sort of anti-authoritarian. I don't mean that quite in like a left-leaning way. There can be that. It can also be more of a libertarian way. But if you play poker for a living, 
and you were somebody who was like deliberately decided not to kind of enter the system, so to speak. Um, poker players are mostly very talented people, right? They have very good analytical skills. They have medium good people skills, people with like great people skills instead become like rich working for a hedge fund or something, right? But like these are talented people that could have like jobs that would probably pay more, definitely with less variance and a more steady income. And they kind of choose to play poker because they don't want to have a boss, right? It's like one of the only professions where you can like really be a lone wolf. And there are a couple of qualifications to that. But for the most part, you can be a lone wolf and you work for yourself on the hours that you want to work. Um, and with a lot of noise, are rewarded for it or punished for it based on on your skill level. So, you know, that affects a certain type of person. Um, you know, look, uh, you'll meet a few Trump fans, right? You'll meet um, a lot of libertarian types. You'll meet a few liberals, right? But most people who like also are not super engaged by politics. It's people who will say, oh, why is everything so political, right? If you say that in like politics Twitter, people are like, well, that's a mark of of privilege or it's like a coded kind of right-wing view or something, right? I mean, when people say that, it means something real and meaningful, right? Which is that like, um, they don't treat politics as like a hobby. They have another hobby, mm. poker, maybe sports or, you know, other, there are other things, you know, crypto, psychedelics. There are certain things that are like mm. correlated with the poker playing personality type. Um, but they look at politics as something they find annoying because it gets in the way of what they see as producing more rational outcomes. Right. And I could explain, well, actually your definition of rationality is much too mm -hmm. narrow and you're not understanding how complicated the system is. And like, you know, but, but yeah, they're, they're anti-authoritarian is a term that I would, that I would use. I'm curious what your presence is like at these things, or do you not even, do you try not to think about that? For those who do, don't know, you had this very impressive run this summer at the World Series of Poker. I'm trying to remember where you finished among over 10,000 people. Was it 87th? Is that, does 80, that sound 87th. right? Yeah, I have that number burned in my head, I think, permanently. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, there you there you go. Which, uh, considering the amount of participants, that, that's a very impressive showing. Uh, you obviously are somebody with a public profile. Uh, do you feel like they're trying to take you out? You didn't mention it. When you were going through what it's like at one of these tournaments and the endurance and the focus and how you approach yeah. it and everything else, you didn't talk about that aspect, which is being Nate Silver at one of these things. What's that like? So when I first started playing a lot of tournament poker a couple of years ago, it was kind of um, – I mean I played poker professionally as a cash game player in the mid-2000s, right? So I'm not coming at this totally out of nowhere, but kind of like – basically dropped the game for 10 years or so and then kind of picked it up right before the pandemic and then got really into it like during the pandemic and then and then afterward. Um, so at first when I would play, it would be like the poker news sites would be like, oh my gosh, this like comparatively well-known person is playing poker and would give me like a lot of press coverage. But then you're just at enough tournaments where the novelty wears off <laughs> a mm. little bit and people kind of know you more as a poker player or someone on the poker scene, right? Um the main event of the World Series Poker was a bit different in that, like, there are 10,000 players, which is just so many players, right? There might be in the world 500 to 1,000 to 1,200, you know, winning tournament poker players, right? Um, there might be another several hundred, like, minor to medium-sized celebrities. I played against a very good boxer, middleweight boxer, for example, at the World Series. Um, but, like, but I'm one of the bigger names, so I was featured a lot on, like, 
on live stream and TV coverage, um, which to me, I think is like actually an advantage because like I have been on TV, not for poker, like for politics stuff mm. a lot. Right. I've been kind of like on stage a lot and in the public spotlight a lot. So like, like I would rather not have that pressure, but I think I just have more reps that respond to that pressure than, than other players would. Um, yeah. And over the course of a tournament, like the main event, I lasted till day six. If you win the main event, it's an 11 day tournament, right? Um, the pressure builds and builds and builds, right? You don't have a whole lot of time to like sleep. You're totally wired at the end of the day, right? You go home, have a drink or whatever, right? Come back. Um, people begin to just crack under the pressure or are kind of like unable to hide their, um, their emotions. They give off like a lot of, a lot of tells, a lot of live reads. Well, sometimes just kind of like might as well be turning their hand <laughs> over sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Um, not to a certain degree, but where you can make pretty good reads. Um, and so that kind of pressure building. And I, I felt like, I felt like by day six, I had kind of like really hit a rhythm and, and, and felt very confident. And unfortunately ran into a hand where I made, um, three of a kind and the other player had the only better three of a kind. We call it a set mm. in poker. And, uh, yeah. And it went from like the amount of chips I had in front of me was equivalent to about like $500,000 in expected value. So you mm. go from like, or actually if I won that hand, I should say, right. So you go from like 200,000, I think you're going to double up and have 500,000 to zero, um, <laughs> in about five seconds. Well, how do you process that? Because I've read your book and your take on it is that you you tell yourself, I played it right. I'm assuming that you had done the right call in that situation based on the probabilities of what your opponent had without knowing it. Uh, can you really in that moment be that process focused when that's the outcome? I mean, this particular exit from a tournament was easier in the sense that like, there is like nothing debatable about that hand, right? I had the second best possible hand, maybe 1% of the time he'll have the very best possible hand, right? Um, if it had been more marginal, if I had like a flush draw and got aggressive and then all of a sudden I'm playing for all my chips, so he could have played it more cautiously, then you might second guess a lot more. And usually when you do get ousted from a tournament, it's because of a, a more mm. marginal situation. But like, but I don't know, man, I feel like I've had like a, a really good life and um, a lot of success in life and like been lucky in most respects in my life. And so I kind of look at it as like a, as like a free roll is a term that um, a poker player would use. Right. Um, I am playing within my means. There is upside that I get to realize once in a while. Um, but no, poker players are like uniquely process driven in a way that like people in politics are like the exact opposite. They're extremely results driven and yeah. at least sports, you hit like you hit the long run in sports, right? You play 82 NBA games a year, 162 baseball games, right? You hit the long run. In politics, you have like one election every two to four years, depending whether you're running for president or Congress or what else, or six in, in the Senate. Um, people are very results oriented and not process driven at all. So it's it's a very yeah. helpful and I think opposite skill to what uh, I might encounter in my in my other work. Yeah, that's that's for sure. I also found it interesting how you were you're talking about how the assumption of your advantage in such a setting, because you are known as this quant, uh, people would think, well, he's the statistical genius at the poker table. But really, as you were indicating, your advantage is more that you've gotten the reps of being on television and being under pressure 
that maybe some other people haven't gotten at the tournament because the statistical knowledge in poker is a uh, table stakes, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, in many yeah, instances. In poker, and some people access it in a more formal way, some in a more intuitive way, just by having, having so many reps, right. You get very, very, very fine tuned with your, your intuition, right. If you've read like the Daniel Kahneman stuff about system one and system two, thinking fast and thinking slow, if you have a lot of practice, then things that are weird, that are very detailed, just become second nature, right? Where it's like, oh, because this card is a diamond, I did this. If it was a heart, I would have done that instead, right? You don't even like process it consciously, just like hmm. molding your brain so much to have like thousands and thousands of hands and repetitions can help a lot. But yeah, in poker, I'm like the normal one, right? Like hmm. it's a lot of people that are very, very good at math um, who are very very competitive. It's not even math so much as like applied logic plus some applied psychology and executing under pressure, having some like self-discipline. Um, the formal math part of it is like nothing like, it's like nowhere near as complex as in like chess or something. Um, mm. But but there's an intuition kind of understanding, you know, basically game theory and understanding equilibria and things like that, that gets a little complicated, but, um, but you know, that builds a lot over time. It benefits from, from practice, like no other activity that I've experienced really. Can you, you know, we'll move on from the poker eventually, but let's say I'm playing poker. Is there a common tell I should avoid that you tend to pick up on, or can you even give that away? Um, it can be a little hard to verbalize because some things are kind of intuitive, but like, but look, the difficult thing is that some people, you can see a reaction. You can see a stress reaction, right? Deducing what that means is not always easy. Some people get very stressed out when they're bluffing. Some people get very stressed out when um, when they have a good hand, right? They have aces and their kind of hearts beating really rapidly, right? I mean, in general, um, people give a lot away. Um, people like wear sunglasses to cover their eyes. The eyes are not usually the thing that give you the most information right it's more um like the pulse it can be mm. um the hands right it can be posture back in the days when um people were wearing face masks because of covid um detecting like heavy breathing was actually easier you think oh you're you have a mask covering your face it's good well no because like those masks if you're breathing heavily you can detect that easier right and again i am like wow. i am still like an amateur in terms of picking up live reads but like just being observant and like and watching people. It's one thing I've learned in the past year or two is like, I won't look at my hand until it's my turn to act. Right. So you're getting practice. There are eight other players at the table. Every player you can go and say, okay, um, that action seems a little bit weak to me. That action seems like kind of strong. Right. And then lo and behold, maybe you don't even play the hand, but it turns out later on they had pocket aces or pocket Kings. And you're like, okay, I'm kind of filing that away in my mental database of behaviors to notice and kind of develop like a, a intuitively accessible kind of, feel for it it's almost a little bit like the way that like large language models work that's that's too far mm. a detour but like there's like Ooh, a semantics no. or Let's a language <laughs> there's like a semantics or like a language to it almost right where like different things mean different things in different contexts and kind of unpacking mm. those contexts right um and recognizing like oh i've seen this behavior x y and z before and the story this person's telling doesn't quite make sense um yeah, no, it's 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 a fun skill to pick up on and kind of just being observant about kind of life in general. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I actually went into this not planning on asking you any poker questions, but I can't help. I can't help it. It's interesting. I'll ask one more. Uh, there is a clip of you on YouTube winning a massive bluff. Uh, what was that like? Were you terrified the whole time or were you confident or just what is what is that experience like? So this is a heads up match that like I ultimately lost and I kind of felt like um, this other player named Adam Hendricks is a very good player. He was, I think at the time, like the number one, number two tournament player ranked in the world. Um, and I felt like I played a little tentatively and kind of like, I'm like, I'm going to have to go out like swing, go out firing if I'm going to, if I'm going to go out. Right. Um, mm. And you're supposed to bluff a lot in poker, right? People feel like it's some like guilty pleasure, the whole basis of why poker works is that it's a game where you you have to bluff fairly often in order to theoretically have a reason for people to pay you off when you have a good hand, right? You have to bluff. It's like the essence of what makes poker poker and not um, a different card game. Um, so he folded a much stronger hand than I was expecting him to or he was supposed to um, because he thought that I wouldn't bluff enough, right? It was a certain type of board, three cards of the same suit that people, empirically the player pool, doesn't bluff those cards enough, right? Um, they play too straightforwardly. I'd happen to kind of like study those spots a little bit and I will look for bluffs there. And so, so you're kind of trying to zig where others zag or vice versa. Um, he's making assumptions about me based on stereotypes, for lack of a better term, both of how I mm. might play and how the other player pool might play, right? And he's a very good player. More often than not, his stereotypes are going to be right. Um, but if you kind of know what someone thinks about you, you can exploit that and take advantage of what was mathematically a very incorrect fold. His hand was much too strong to fold um, because you're kind of winning one level ahead in the leveling game, getting one step mm. ahead, which you don't always, right? Um, but it's a very fun feeling when you kind of like, pick up someone's image of you and yeah. do a little half twist and you're, and you're doing exactly the opposite of what, what they want you to do. Yeah. There's a clip. There's a clip that speaks to that um, of Bill Belichick talking about how Ed Reed made the greatest football play that he had ever seen. And I would probably screw it up if I completely uh, retold it, but the basic premise is it was an interception on Peyton Manning where Ed Reed had observed what Manning did after a pump fake and then adjusted to how Manning would adjust and do the opposite thing that, you know, that he did last time. And Reed turned his body completely to Manning and ran the opposite direction and then caught the interception like it was a punt return. Um, and I think that there is a, that that's a lot of fun. That's sort of cat and mouse game. And I think that's one of the, um, that's one of the appeals of sports that isn't talked about enough beyond the physical, uh, beyond, you know, the splendor of it all. I think those mind games is what keeps people at the highest levels, uh, rather addicted. No, for sure. Like Greg Maddox, maybe the most cerebral pitcher of all time, um, is Las Vegas bred and kind of knows poker really well and plays poker apparently very well. Right. It's, it's kind of the same thing. Like I've tried to work lately on, um, I'm kind of like a fastball pitcher. I'm pretty aggressive, right? Um, you have to have a good mm -hmm. changeup too, right? Or something off speed um, to help set up your fastball, right? Even if that's your best pitch, the game theory says that you have to, unless you're Mariano mm -hmm. Rivera, you have to like mix and match a little bit. And so there are 
there are like very direct analogies between um between poker and and sports oh, i love this i love this i think about that exact analogy when i think about substack of all things because yeah. there are kinds of articles that i know result in my best haul in terms of subscriptions and we could say that they might even be red meat they're just they're the fastball let's say i have a great fastball um but you really can't play the game that way you do need to even it out a bit you do need to have an article that's a little bit unexpected or maybe off the beaten path and maybe that's not your maybe that's not your best pitch but you're going to have diminishing returns and bad outcomes if you just keep going to old number one over and over again and i've definitely seen it happen to some people especially in terms of audience capture no for for sure i mean it gets a little monotonous when someone kind of always plays the same tune and a little bit polemical right and like i think kind of like i think you show more when you pick your battles like a little bit more carefully right it's another big poker concept as i call it like you know, you want to be a raise or fold player. Most mm. of the time in poker, you want to either be increasing the stakes or folding and not and not just calling, right? I think it's kind of similar with like content, <laughs> content on the web. You know, you can skip a lot of controversies where you don't have like a lot of value to add, right? If there's something where you do have a lot of value, you know, going in, I mean, you're very good at this, right? But going in on the same beat, the same theme, two or three or four times, and then, and then maybe you let out. Then you said what you have to say, right? Um, yeah. But no, it's... I think it's important, and I think um, like I read a lot of Substack and other newsletters. I think people have that rhythm a bit more, and you kind of see more of their personalities. I've always liked the weird personality-driven stuff on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? I like when people are like posting a photo from their backyard or or talking about some weird hobby they have, right? I, I you mm-hmm. know, I like that kind of thing. I think it shows kind of who the person is behind it, and it's not just like some some wall of text. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if that's what I'm into. I mean, I'm just, this is occurring to me in the moment, but in terms of content delivery, not that I'm thinking about it so uh, mechanically, but there is something weird happening where you're giving people something they expect, but you also need to surprise them too. You kind of need to give them both or it sort of doesn't work, which is why it's a little bit different from trying to completely outfox and outwit your opponents like in sports. Yeah or poker, but there's something else going on where you do need to kind of surprise them and maybe adding some personality as part of the surprise, just not being completely a content uh, delivery uh, mechanism. I mean, the the thing I, I take from other people too, not always consciously, but I've sort of learned how to do it as I've done it. And I think something I've noticed that people like is also behind the curtain. That's another thing they're looking for that they don't get enough of. And sometimes yeah. behind the curtain, it comes in weird ways. Like obviously behind the curtain is you taking us to the World Series of Poker. But I also think it's something I picked up on from Freddie DeBoer where sometimes he would be a little bit candid about media dynamics in a way others wouldn't be. I even wrote down or copy pasted something you wrote about um, the guy who's now been tapped to run 538 who has a sort of Oxford yeah. <laughs> academic sounding name that I can't just recall off the top of my head. Uh, but, but you said about his feud with the guy who runs uh, the polling firm Rasmussen, uh, the internet has a memory. So there's also not much point in hiding that I really don't like either of the parties. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there's still like, I don't, I don't look, I think one of the way, cause I also think about like, 
you know, what is the equilibrium for like takes, right? Um, mm. And like, or not takes, it's kind of wrong, but like for political arguments, right? Who was willing to kind of make which arguments to whom in what context? I think a big mistake people make is like, if you have a member of the audience that you're going to alienate in the long term anyway, there's like no point in delaying mm. <laughs> that alienation, <laughs> right? If you can't take um, the fact that, you know, my uh, website um, will have some sports stuff and and some politics stuff that you will agree with and some that you probably won't agree with, right? Um What's I mean? If you can't handle me at my best, then or am I? You know, I, <laughs> you, don't, but like, you don't. If you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve. Yeah, you don't deserve Nate Silver at his best, folks. But it's it's all part of one way of looking at the world, right? And I think that like I do have like a different way of looking at the world, in part because I came to journalism kind of late. I came to journalism mm-hmm. after I'd already been a management consultant turned poker player turned like baseball sabermetrician, right? It was like the fourth career that I had. And like, and so I don't kind of like subscribe to the tropes that people do. I, my friends are mostly not in, in, you know, the media per se. Right. Um, and I just have like a different skill set and kind of feel like I'm a little bit of like a imposter almost. Right. It's like quite mm-hmm. random that like someone who basically built like was basically gambling and kind of built um, an election model the way that like, a gambler would right um and that skill set very randomly just very randomly gets like really rewarded and becomes very popular it's very random and i kind of feel like i have like like a little bit of an obligation like not to be like a class trader exactly right but mm. to like but to like take advantage of the fact that like um i'm like less correlated with the typical like political journalist background than other people might be that will make me wrong sometimes and like annoying sometimes, but like, but I like do have like a different point of view and a different skill set. Um, and trying to like trying to lean into that and kind of saying that a little bit more out loud that's what the newsletter is very good for. Um, and to make things like textual and not subtextual, um, just so kind of people can have more transparency into my like thought process. Yeah, I mean, the article that I'm mentioning there, I don't think we get that article from anybody else. Um, And how do I even do the exposition of, uh, uh, forgive me for not being able to call up his name (laughs) with the initial in it. I think G. Elliot Morris, yeah. G. Elliot Elliot Morris, who has been tapped to run 538. For those who do not know, who probably associate you with 538, uh, you are not with 538, which has got to be very confusing to a lot of people and probably to yourself at some level, I would assume. It's like if, if it's like if House of Strauss became one of the most popular websites in the world and I was no longer running it, but people were still... So anyway, that's a whole other topic and you can talk about it at length if you, uh, if, yeah. if, if you want. If you want. Um, but uh, the article is uh, Morris emailed Rasmussen uh, with a very accusatory email and Rasmussen has had a Republican lean and it was about their associations with conservatives and it seemed to be yes quite accusatory and you were you were going into why you know why you did not like that why you were not a fan of that letter and this might be a stupid question um, but why? You know why? Why shouldn't there be an ideological purity test for a pollster? I'll I'll, I'll say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> because 
you know, it has nothing to do, at least a priori, with how good they are at their job. And also, I don't want to be going to every pollster and say, hey, did you vote for did you vote for Trump in 2020? I don't want to have to, like, mm-hmm. inventory every pollster's, like, opinion about different things. And also, it's a field where where the work speaks for itself, right? Um, and Rasmussen is, like, not a great pollster. They screwed up pretty badly in 2020. They do have a Republican lean. Um but, uh, but you know, but look, actually, we're fine in 2020 because 2020, the polls, again, like overestimated um, mm. Biden, even though he won. They didn't do well in 2022 is what I meant to say. Um, yeah. But um, but look, I'm I'm old school. Right. I think you can kind of separate out the art from the artist. I'm not in this kind of whole postmodern kind of blurring <laughs> of lines and and privileging the identity and credentials of the speaker above the speaker's argument when the argument can be like evaluated on its own merits. Um, you know, and also like at the end of the day, the objective is to have the most accurate polling average possible. And I think kind of eliminating a pollster for ideological reasons, isn't going to help with that. Now, again, if they were like a fantastic pollster, it would be easier to make that case, but like Hmm. looking at the tone of tone of the letter, um, it doesn't lead with ideological concern, or excuse me, it doesn't lead with, oh, um, here's a methodological issue, right? It leads with, oh, are you like associating with far right-wing people, right? And so that yeah. unto itself is like disqualifying and, and um, you know, look, any other context too is like, I know that like this person, um, Morris, is very progressive, kind of very wears that on his sleeve and kind of, has a different view of journalism than I do, right? When I got into this business, I was seen as being um, dangerously transparent for, I like said openly that I'd like voted for Obama in 2008, for example, right? And now I'm seen as like, um, there was some new Republican article that's like, oh, Nate is not political enough, right? Despite mm-hmm. like, imagine like my old boss at the New York Times from like 10, 12 years ago, be like, oh, we love that, right? We love that like, <laughs> that um that like he is able to distance his kind of personal political views of which of which I have plenty from his ability to like analyze polls and and election stuff um or be transparent about those when those are important um but that has kind of entirely entirely shifted where um where you know five years ago I was kind of the guy criticizing news organizations like the Times for like being too both sides I mean, I do think that mm. Trump prevented, presented a profound challenge and still does to, to media and to politics in a lot of ways. Um, but there's been a very big shift in the standards where, uh, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> how far I want to go down this road. Right. But like, but hey, like I'll, I'll go wherever you want to go, man. It's your, yeah. it's, it's your pot. <laughs> no, people should read the typical article People just read the typical article in the New York Times um, or the Washington Post from today, an article about like Trump, for example, and compare it to what it was in um, 2012 when I worked for the Times or up until about like, I think, 2015, 2016, even 2017. It's just it's just very, very different. Um, Mm. It depends a lot by by subject. Um. But I think there's a notion among like some journalists that like um, 
our job is to tell you who's on the right side and who deserves to like gain and lose in social esteem and how you should feel about a story and or what is the kind of narrative smart thing you can say about a story if you're um if you're with your smart kind of college educated friends who are mm. in the same kind of social class as opposed to hey let's just kind of print the facts with appropriate context and appropriate you know informed judgment by the journalist that's appropriate right but like instead it's like i think a lot of journalists think they're like moral authorities and that's the one thing they aren't really right um mm. you know journalists have a fairly thankless job it's kind of very hard to gather facts on politically sensitive topics um and to produce that output very much in in real time in a market that unless you're on the high end is not very remunerative i can say that word right it's not very profitable right yeah it's a tough word to say i've run into that one when i narrate the articles but you were saying well it's like i'll take a relatively innocent example that won't get me like too canceled or anything right but there was like a a buzzfeed writer recently who had an article talking about how problematic like taylor swift's new boyfriend was right <laughs> and i'm yeah, like yeah do you understand how much yeah how much her tickets are selling for she's selling out like football stadiums at thousands of dollars a seat <laughs> on the on the aftermarket right um so like kind of whose job is it for you to like to tell us what we should think about taylor swift right and not just to say okay here's my advocacy for why or here's my argument for why um mm. why this is problematic but just to say like i am a millennial or zoomer writer for buzzfeed and and i'm just telling you how you should feel and i have authority as a journalist i'm an expert and therefore you know journalists don't have expertise at like at um unless you kind of study the speech specifically at like at like being a moral authority particularly right um and so much of kind of like what you get is very heavy handed. Let me give you like another example that's kind of pertinent to work I'm doing this week. Right. Um, mm. So I'm writing a book about like gambling. Um, and so there's a, a little bit like a 500 word section on Donald Trump, who is one of the most famous casino moguls of all time, although not a very successful one. Right. Um, and kind of going back and like reading accounts of the history of Trump's properties in Atlantic city, which went bankrupt repeatedly and failed, right? Um, and you read the articles from like 2016 when he was a political candidate. I mean, they're pretty good. It's like, it's pretty darn good reporting, right? Um, but the articles from like 1990 or 1991 are like much more cutting in some ways, right? Because they're mm. more detail-oriented. Um, there's some story about how um, practically a number of Trump's executives um, died in a helicopter crash a few months before the Trump Taj Mahal was set to open in Atlantic City. This kind of this is like a legitimately awful circumstance, right? Your three top executives die, you're Trump, so you don't know any better, and you start trying to run things yourself, right? Um, but in the article, like he actually criticizes one of the dead guys for like screwing up his business, right? Oh and I'm like, God. if you had kind of like looked at that, right, instead of trying to be so thematic, like that, I think kind of tells you more about. Trump than maybe the headline would about like text or whatever. Right. Um, and it's just kind of so deadpan the 1990-91 piece that like, it doesn't need like a lot of embellishment, right. It can be there and, and 
the fact kind of tells you the morality of, of it itself. Well, yeah, there's um, a boy who cried wolf quality to it, or I could use the facile baseball pitching analogy once again, where if you're throwing the same pitch, the pitches tend to lose their potency. Um, but if I were to make an argument for the uh, activism as journalism, just in terms of what they're trying to functionally accomplish, I guess I could I could say this. I could say uh, I was very surprised by how the Democrats performed in the 2022 midterms. It was certainly above my expectations. Uh, they appear to be crushing the special elections. Um, I don't know if we're on the cusp of a new Democratic majority, but it, it almost seems like something has happened where there's been um, – a kind of coalescing of opinion within the educated classes. And it, it has made the Democratic Party and a lot of their preferences, as you have written, the default um, opinion. And so wouldn't you say that as an ideological project, perhaps it has been successful to make the journalism uh, more in the progressive voice and more activisty? It's a, it's a great question, Ethan. I mean, Look, Democrats have had a fairly successful um, handful of years politically, right? They had a very good year in 2018. They had not a great year in 2020, but Biden won, and that's what counts the most, right? They had a very good 2022. Um, Biden's actually passed quite a few bills with a fairly narrow majority. Um, so, yeah, although I think ironically, like, if you look at opinions of journalism or other kind of expert-led institutions, they mm. keep declining. <laughs> so kind of maybe – so maybe they are successfully – I'm not sure what they means here, but maybe people are successfully yeah. kind of like trading in the long-term reputation of journalism for short-term political gains, right? Mm. Um, and like as someone who cares about journalism, then I feel like I have the right to object to that, even if I like some of the policies that Biden – is passing. And I think it is kind of, yeah. you know, you mentioned before the boy who cries wolf, people like just don't seem to get the basics of like the game theory <laughs> behind mm -hmm. this, you know, when, um, when in the early days of the pandemic kind of Fauci and other people said, Oh, um, don't bother wearing masks. They don't really do that much good. And also healthcare workers need them. Um, to not realize it would later on reduce their credibility is kind of is kind of shocking to me, right? And when people say, mm. oh, well, trust like, you know, I'm an expert, trust the experts. I mean, if you kind of like are a student at all of like um, of political history or human history, like, you know, the experts are, are very confidently wrong <laughs> very mm -hmm. often. Um, yeah. That's and, only because we didn't place enough trust in them, Nate. That's if only we had placed more trust, they would have yeah. gotten it better. No, and if you look at the experts, the experts on experts, right? The experts on expertise, <laughs> uh, they say that experts are way overconfident very often. That obviously, like, kind of like, like the people who are like committed, kind of left of center people, and think they kind of like study power dynamics and are kind of savvy to how those work, like, don't seem to think very much about like kind of power dynamics in their own industry a little bit and mm -hmm. kind of, um, kind of perverted incentives. And also just the fact that like, um, look, it's a big world. There are lots of people out there competing to be journalists. Um, and if there is an opportunity to like exploit a particular viewpoint, then someone will take it. If there's an opportunity to like kind of say, okay, I'm going to like 
wave the banner of science to like advance political arguments, they'll get away with that because like science is a very kind of trusted brand among among the left these days, among Democrats, right? Um, people are very reluctant to kind of call them out, but like, but you'll have actors that are either um, hiding sloppy work or hiding political work, right? Um, or some of just like kind of self-interested stuff, right? Um, behind this banner of like, oh, expertise in science and like, or the banner of like, oh, misinformation. That's like a buzzword that I think um, yeah. is usually a red flag that uh, you're often getting a very politicized argument. Um, and the fact that like 80% of journalists aren't doing that just kind of creates more opportunity for the 20% of people who do, right? It's like in a town where like, um, mm. where nobody locks their doors because there's a lot of trust. It's a really good town to be a, a thief. Hmm. I mean, obviously, I'm with you on this question. I don't like activism as journalism. I prefer when we try to be as accurate as possible and just get the facts straight without immediately jumping into this, what I call the PRification of everything, which has afflicted so many people, not just journalists, but even your your uncle on Facebook is talking like a uh, somebody paid by the political party but he's not getting any money to advance some kind of copy pasta messaging. I consider it a kind of hell. And I think one of the outcomes of it that I don't like that I think you spoke to in your great post, the Indigo blog. Uh, I mean, I've it's, it's this, it's this sense of, okay. So it, it's a lot of things. It's so many things all tangled together, but something I've talked about is that we're at, we're at a particular moment where I think being a Republican has become very stigmatized among the educated classes of people. Whereas when I was a kid, it was just something some people were, you know, some people were Republicans, some people were Democrats and there's an argument or a discussion to be had as to how that stigmatization happened. I think if you're a conservative person, you might blame the media primarily for being unfair and the universities for brainwashing people. But if you're a liberal, you would say, well, it's a deserved stigmatization because you guys were, you know, racist and, you know, nominated carnival barkers and Trump because he's beyond the pale. I'm setting that whole conversation aside and just saying it's the outcome, right? It's a, it's a stigmatized brand to be right wing or conservative in a lot of public facing institutions and places where you'd want to be. And I think what's happened as a result of it, um, I don't even think it, I just see it, is that it's become a very effective cudgel against questioning institutional yeah. prerogatives and outcomes, um, where you get to this weird point where if I'm raising a question during the pandemic of, I don't think my three-year-old should be forced to wear a mask all day at daycare that becomes coded as right wing <laughs> it's just well what right. does that have to do with any of that stuff but it's just become this easy silencing tactic and uh, bulwark against skepticism and it's been so frustrating it's been one of the reasons why i've enjoyed your work during this moment no and it's not even like positions that are like right wing it can be things that are very like center left right if your view on covid was basically um Pro-vaccine, which is my view, right? Pro-vaccine, lockdown, skeptical, kind of masks, agnostic, right? Think they don't make that much difference the way they're worn in practice. Um, if you thought closing schools is like a really bad idea, if you think the lab leak is a very plausible theory, like those are all things that like are very, very, very popular viewpoints that like at one point or another 
particularly in the kind of pre-Elon version of Twitter, would get you kind of skewered. But again, I kind of go back to like the the kind of game theory of it, where um, if you are kind of threatening a dominant viewpoint on Twitter and you kind of like have a good hand to play, right? That you're like, actually, like, I think the evidence backs me up. Number one, and my view is kind of popular if you want to litigate this with a wider audience. And like, then like people kind of have to have to come after you, right? I think I think people are pretty strategic in in who they attack on on Twitter and kind of who has like um, the ability to like kind of undermine um, partisan argumentation that's kind of excused in the form of 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 expertise. Yeah, and the near enemy is more threatening than the far enemy. It's, I mean, who cares what Sean Hannity is saying? It's more the person yeah. who is within your milieu, who's somebody who has some discretion in what the New York Times might put out, what somebody might they might listen to. That becomes the uh, that's when it gets particularly vicious, and it's uh, it's shut up about that in particular. It's uh, it's very unpleasant, Nate. It's no, and Twitter unpleasant. is weird in that, like, you have people, um, it's more of a push than a pull. I'm not sure if I'm getting that right. But, like, mm. if you followed me on Twitter eight years ago to get my, like, election takes, and, like, now you kind of are hearing about things that, like, you might not have followed me for <laughs> exactly, mm. which is, like, also true, like, on a newsletter or on Substack. But there people are kind of opting in to subscribe, and, like, you have kind of more time to, like, like contextualize things, right? And so I think kind of people just um, people make a certain assumptions about about you as a person, but also kind of like what arguments are are safe to make on on Twitter versus what aren't, right? Um, yeah. You know, I will see like a lot of sports writers like weighing in on like political arguments on Twitter, um, and like sometimes I kind of like. Um, want to like pull them aside and say that like, look, as someone who kind of mostly covers politics, like this thing you're saying is like not going to land, <laughs> not going to land mm. well, right. That you think you're making like an innocuous observation, but I know how political language is coded and like, and this may reveal more than you want to reveal in either direction, potentially, um, you know, at least people who are kind of engaged in covering elections and politics kind of, kind of understand those semantics a little bit more, but no people, you know, if you get the accusation, oh, you're kind of like straying outside of your lane. I mean, I think everybody on Twitter kind of strays outside of their lane. Um, but you only get that complaint when you're kind of like saying a argument that people find uh, goes against kind of the partisan team or they find mm. like wrong or they haven't been like exposed to as much. Um, so there's like a lot of like elaborate argumentative infrastructure for how to like for how to shut people down from expressing legitimate, although oh. certainly sometimes wrong, certainly totally wrong sometimes, right? But legitimate disagreement. Oh, I'm often very impressed by the brilliance of people who want to shut down, uh, who want to shut down thought. Uh, they they come <laughs> up with great uh, rhetorical contraptions and I'm often shaking my head in admiration at it. It's all in service to not thinking about things. So it's rather remarkable that so much thinking has gone into it. But 
No, I can think of, you know, a couple off the top of my off the top of my head. One is just the idea that just asking questions has been this stigmatized phrase oh, yeah. that gets used as though, <laughs> I mean, to insinuate that's what, you know, a conspiracy theorist with a tinfoil hat would say just asking questions about something preposterous. So now you have now uh, now you've stigmatized just skepticism, <laughs> which you should have about things and questions and people should be able to answer questions, especially people who make important decisions. Richard Feynman uh, demonstrated how the challenger blew up with a paper cup, explaining it simply. This should be an expectation of those who make the biggest decisions that they explain it. But that that's one particular way. And then the other particular way I've seen is to almost um, roll your eyes at people questioning the consensus as yet another person bemoaning, um, I don't know, cancel culture or whatever, as though yeah. if a trend is represented more frequently, it makes it less true. It's very, uh, again, I'm, I'm amazed at what gets popularized as a rhetorical tactic for preventing skepticism. And what, again, I like about your Substack, which is often a dispassionate examination of difficult questions. Yeah, look, I mean, um, the invocation of different language, like the term woke and wokeness and all those adjacent terms, um, like Freddie DeBoer is good on this and that there are ideas coming out of that tradition, if you will, or that movement, if you will, that are different than traditional leftism and different than traditional liberalism, certainly, like the views on free speech and things like that, for example. Um, and it's a thing that exists. I wish the name woke hadn't been co-opted by a million like Ron DeSantis's and maybe had like had like a better term for it. Um, but it's a thing that exists. And it's like a distinct set of ideas that has been profoundly influential among kind of non-conservative thinkers for the past five or 10 years. Right. And so like, you know, I try not to focus very much on like identity politics stuff. I think it like just gets very, very overcovered relative to other topics. Um, mm. But like, we have to be able to kind of use terms that have meaning to refer yeah. to things that like exist oh. in the world and 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 not dance around them with semantic games. Yeah, we. Freddie said, "Okay, just let tell me what to call this thing that other people are calling woke." If I can't say woke personally. I've started to say political correctness because it's ironically yeah. now the least politically loaded way to describe it. And what has been useful in the early 1990s is, again, useful if you just call the mores surrounding these particular sensitivities political correctness. You almost go a little bit further than if you say woke, which gets everybody to their battle stations. But uh, whatever term you use is going to become uh, declassé, I suppose. And it's this strange dynamic where woke is almost like hipster, where you see a bunch of hipsters, yeah. but nobody would ever say, you know what? I'm I'm a hipster. That's that's what I am and what I'm about. No, and people should be willing to like, like you know, one of the tenets that I, of wokeness that I agree with as someone who kind of has studied American politics is that like, you know, I think they're right that like race is often an animating force in American politics more so than classes, right? And so, like, like own that argument, you know? Call Pick a better mm -hmm. name, because, like, woke has become, like, for sure, like, a little bit genericized. But, like, it is a distinct, like, political viewpoint, and, and you know, you can't evade it by, like, refusing to, to name it. Yeah, it's, I guess, but yet it's slippery. And when people are asked to define it, they often, they often struggle, but it has this sense of you, uh, you know it when you see it. 
Um, and I think there is a distinction, for instance, we might call it woke, we might call it something else. There, there is a distinction between how you were seeking to run 538 and how the new guy seeks to run 538 um, as part of a moral project versus as part of a project of inquiry. And whatever we might call it, it does represent a philosophical shift that's in keeping with so much of what has happened in the last decade. Yeah, I mean, maybe call it like the progressive moral project. I like the term progressive because it's like a little bit neutral also, right? It refers mm -hmm. kind of like a, a polytheistic blend of different types of left of center thinking and doesn't and doesn't lean into any one strand of it that much. Um, but the idea that like institutions should exist to like, that A, that we kind of know the right answers. We know, we know the big important answers to the big important questions and B, um, major institutions in society, you know, science, even like business, right, should work toward toward advancing or at least adopting the values of those institutions explicitly in some ways. Um, you know, like it's a very particular set of ideas that's been again, like again, kind of very influential. And of course there's like a of course there's a backlash now, right? It kind of like took conservatives a long time to figure out that we can have power to like disrupt the market too, especially for like non-differentiated products, you know, cheap yeah. beer or whatever. Um, hmm. And like, I thought that was going to happen for like for a long time. Right. And that kind of liberal organized boycotts. Oh, let's kind of like, let's boycott advertisers on um, the Tucker Carlson show or Hattie or whatever else. I'm like, you can do that. Just understand a hundred percent for sure that this will come back around to become like a, a tactic that's kind of used um, by by the other side as well. And if you if you think it's a better equilibrium, then by all means, go ahead. I'm definitely not a fan of Tucker, um, but like but like be aware of kind of what the resulting like strategic equilibrium will be. Yeah, I naively started to think: Is there something in the conservative? personality that just doesn't boycott because it, it hadn't happened for so for so long and then for whatever reason the straw that broke the camel's back was broken and bud light of all things became this uh win for boycott from the conservative side which theoretically uh should usher in a new era of this thing happening in kind but th these are the sorts of things you think about and write about i don't know one off or is this uh the threshold has has been broken and you're gonna see this you're gonna see these successful boycotts all the time from the right i mean people do get kind of like a little bit bored of the of the shiny object after after a period of time i mean one big finding from political science too is that like Public opinion is very thermostatic, which means that the temperature goes up in one direction and you turn it down or vice versa. Um, so a lot of um, the rise of progressivism or wokeness, whatever you want to call it, was aided by a reaction to Trump being president. And now like a lot of the backlash is aided by Biden being president. And depending on who wins in 2024, you can kind of predict similar mm. things over that next kind of next kind of four year period. Um but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, look, it helps the left too that like, um, how do I kind of put this right? But like, but you know, in some cases, the fact that like college educated people are overwhelmingly Democrats, it's not 
neutral strategically, right? The fact that like, mm. um, like Democrats are more clever at language and how to kind of, um, how to in some ways like, uh, come up with more elaborate reasons why the partisan arguments they're making are not partisan or how to like, mm. how to kind of carefully disguise some ideological arguments within other legitimate arguments. Cause again, I think for the most part, um, the mainstream media does a relatively good job under very difficult circumstances. Right. But it kind of enables people to kind of bury within it. This is the indigo blob hypothesis it enables like embedded within it, like a kind of, partisan kind of hackish kind of left-wing media because they kind of adopt the language of, of expertise and so forth. And the right kind yeah. of like, the right isn't as good at, at bluffing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you go to like the Ivy league or where I went, the university of Chicago, right? You kind of probably get better at like, at learning how to run a good, a good bluff. So you kind of have like plausible deniability for, uh, for when you do when you do choose to like advance a partisan argument there are no mott and bailey games or they're not as subtle on the right perhaps um <laughs> i guess well, there's I think something because, <laughs> i think because it's like not the default anyway then they feel like there's kind of less need to hide it right i think um mm. and again the thesis here is that like in the trump era the kind of 30% of the most MAGA right-wing conservatives, I say 30% of the time people believe the election, incorrectly believe the election was stolen in 2020. Um, they're kind of talking to their set themselves and their kind of own echo chamber, and they kind of don't really feel like it's much of a need to like, to hide it or disguise it, yeah. right? Whereas it's like remaining 70% is a lot more complicated. You have leftists, you have liberals, you have central, centrists, you have anti-Trump conservatives, Right. You have people who are trying to be nonpartisan. You have businesses. You have news organizations of various kinds, right? This is, um, this is your this is your blob. This is the indigo. The blob, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah the red, which, which the slight red with the mostly blue, the slight red with mostly blue, and 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 you know, um, it's a new dynamic. I think it's changed to some degree with with Elon taking over Twitter. People certainly conservatives feel more welcome <laughs> on Twitter. Um, and there might be more stuff. I just, I just, you know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pro vaccine. I think the vaccines did a lot of good under COVID. I'm not sure about mandates, but I think they saved a lot of lives, right? You see more anti-vax stuff that I think probably is misinformation, frankly, but like, but like, at least it's kind of like maybe a, maybe a better equilibrium in, in the long term where you don't have this kind of weird conglomeration of, of the kind of center on the left and, partisan and nonpartisan institutions. Yeah, I you had the take on it that I had had, but I felt very lonely. And it's one of these takes that I tend to get pushback on. I even argued it a bit with Katie Herzog when she was on my podcast, which is they're both bad, but I prefer Elon Twitter for all its user unfriendliness to pre-Elon Twitter. Now, I again, I, I understand the various problems People can enumerate them, but the pre-Elon Twitter did feel like a blob. It felt like a mob beyond being a blob. I felt when I would go on when there was some horrific event out there, I could almost 
I was, I looked like I had poker tells because my heart started racing because I see the sort of, uh, blood in the air kind of feeling. And now when I go on there, it's more of a cacophony and you can visit these little pockets of this Island of thought or that Island of thought. And again, it's a terrible place. And I, I don't participate. I only use it for PR effectively by just putting my articles out, but I prefer the terrible place now to the terrible place then as well. Yeah, look, I think people who, um, you know, people who complain about Twitter the most or the demise of Twitter under Elon, who has, I think, like, screwed up a lot of technical things that weren't broken and has been haphazard is a polite term <laughs> I'm uh. using, right? But like, um, but like the degree of like, group think has like lessened a lot and it's like precisely the, the, the biggest kind of like bullies um who were the most complaining about kind of elon's takeover of twitter and the new voices that we introduced to it right i mean it's very again it's very strategic where like um because of the weird architecture of twitter that like encouraged a lot of dunking um because like conservatives did, I mean, empirically three to one liberals over conservatives in terms of user base on Twitter. So like, if you're like, if you're a writer, then you kind of get a lot of feedback consciously or not that like, when I say things that progressives agree with, it's rewarded. When I say things that conservatives agree with, then you get shat upon, right? Um, it kind of reinforced like a certain, a certain type of, I think actually like relatively, relatively narrow partisan dunky kind of like neurotic is an important term um yeah. personality uh, type of, on twitter a bunch of room readers a bunch of room readers yeah um and if you were on the wrong side of that then that was routinely like a very unpleasant experience and like and that has been lessened quite a bit i mean the people that like always think they're on the right side of every controversy kind of are the people who I think historically would have been on the wrong side of more controversies <laughs> than not, right? <laughs> yeah. um, especially when you kind of like align yourself with the views of one of the major like political parties. When you have only two political parties, they are big tent, particularly Democrats, big tent coalitions that make a lot of very transactional deals that don't intrinsically make a lot of sense to like, because you're kind of flattening all of political space into two dimensions and then sometimes yeah. you get kind of weird artifacts. And so like, if you are like, if you're like an avowed libertarian or an avowed socialist or an avowed communist, right? At least it's like kind of like a philosophically consistent point of view that I might disagree with. If yeah. you're like an avowed Democrat, like political parties are for, are for, normies who who don't have the time to go through every single argument and and be philosophical about it because they have like a life right um if your job is to be any type of like political reporter or intellectual um you should have more sophisticated views than one of these two major brands even if you like one of the brands for justifiable reasons a lot better than the other that's fine right but like but you know you do this for a living go beyond <laughs> dogmatic talking points of one of the of one of the parties at least on some issues you know yeah um i i should hope that's what i would want <laughs> as a customer certainly i mean i again i like what you're doing because i feel 
it's a market inefficiency just because some of these questions are difficult and I don't even see people trying to answer them. You're trying to answer the question of, okay, um, how biased is conservative media and how biased is more left aligned media? And how much does it all matter in the aggregate if a majority of the media is left? So even if they, as you uh, posit, have less bias towards their guys than conservative media does because they have cultural high ground and, you know, more people and are more often considered the default, uh, they win that particular rhetorical battle. I mean, these are thoughts where I, I legitimately when I'm reading you. I know when I'm reading that you're literally just trying to answer the question of what's happening. There's no other game to it. You're not trying to convince us of either position. And in this case, like as is so often true in life, it's a little bit complicated and a little bit contradictory. Conservative media more biased, but more biased, but getting less of their bias, you know, swaying people is a little bit. It makes sense, but there's a push pull there. Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't know how many poker analogies you want to make, right? But like a player that uses like a good mixed strategy, it would be called, that sometimes you're bluffing and sometimes you're not, is like a lot harder to play against than the guy that always goes all in <laughs> every yeah. hand and will be and will be more effective in the long run. And I should say too, like, you know, the the substack um you know, I, I don't know what the long-term plan is is actually I'm still kind of looking for long-term plans, but like as we get kind of more into like election season, then a higher percentage of the articles will be about like kind of bread and butter um, election stuff. But like, but I just had like a lot of interesting kind of life experience again, as this, this kind of like interloper in the kind of like indigo blob, um, mm. even though I'm a part of it and kind of share many of its values. Like, um, and I think kind of talking from that experience is, is worthwhile to people, hopefully. I think so. I'm surprised you're not getting out of it completely. I had that assumption when I went to Sloan and I saw you on stage with Bill James and my subjective read on you is that you were happy and you were loose and you were funny. And I thought mm, he's getting out of this game. He's getting out of politics. No way anybody would want to be within this particular cauldron surrounded by so much emotional negativity uh, from other people wanting whatever outcome and shrieking at you all day. I I'm surprised, Nate. I'm surprised to know that you're even maintaining a foothold as opposed to just, I don't know, going poker and sports 24-7. So I, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that I think some of the things that I'm doing help to provide like a little bit more context for what our model is and how, how I approach the world. That's one, right? Number two is that this is going to be get another super important and probably very close election. I hope everyone listening realizes that like the outcome is quite uncertain. Biden could win. Trump could win. Someone who's not one of those two could, could win, even though they don't seem to be doing very well at the moment. Um, but like, yeah, look, um, maybe you're using, that as a way to transition to stuff that you are more interested in in the long term, right? I mean, if 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 I were to like not cover 2024, that would leave um literally a lot of money on the mm. table, right? Um the different ways to cover it. I mean, trust me, I've like talked to people about options of of taking it private. So you're working with people who are who are trading or betting. On outcomes like that's that's an option that's not 
that's not crazy. Um, but I don't think I can quite justify um, totally punting on that. Um, and I think in some ways, like, um, in some ways, I think it's like kind of like a strength in the medium turn to be able to write about it with like a little bit more arm's length distance to be kind of less granular and more opening up the kimono and more philosophical. I think that kind of aligns well with a situation where, where you're writing these kind of more thoughtful newsletter posts. Um, in the long run, it's a detail oriented business. So like so you're accumulating some like debt by being less in the weeds about things. But in terms of like, an election that like is going to be very um, stressful for a lot of people. Um, maybe kind of trying to take more of an arm's length view um, for 2024 is better. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I make no promises at all about 2028 or 2024. I mean, mm -hmm. the going private thing is like, a, is it a real, is it a real potential option? Um, but yeah, I've been clear about like in the long term. I love this kind of new world that I'm covering for for the book about gambling and risk and it gets into topics like um, artificial intelligence and things like that and gets more philosophical. Um, I mean, I found that, I mean, you yourself have kind of made like a big transition um, quitting the athletic and like, and I can't speak for you, but you know, usually when you kind of are making these transitions, you see a bunch of, of things align. Right. Um, mm. For me, like in these worlds I'm covering for the book. So poker, gambling, sports, um, AI, existential risk, right? Even things like like venture capital. Um, I'm not really a crypto guy myself. But I know people in that world a little bit. Like people are like eager to talk to you and you get along with them and you have good conversations with them, right? And you start to develop a better, um, a better network, right? Um, yeah. the fact that that's happening and it's happening in a way that people aren't seeing because the work for that book won't be published until sometime next year. But like, but that's kind of like where, you know, you're getting, where, you know, you're getting warmer is that you get a lot of like phone calls and emails returned and, and invitations yeah. to things. It feels like you kind of like fit into a world that I never kind of felt like I fit into the, like the, the politics world right mm. um yeah not the same way at least yeah i don't want to pat myself on the back too hard but you i i've experienced this as well where i'm shocked frankly i'm this isn't a humble brag but i'm literally shocked by how many people say yes to come onto the podcast i i and i feel that's partially because when you're aligning what you do with your own interests you tend to get people who are similarly interested um, to have these sorts of conversations. And I think a lot of the people, they just want to have the conversation often and they want to have it in a place that doesn't feel that high stakes, right? They just, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling at this point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's worked out and I, I'm very positive about it. Um, this is one of the best. It's funny because I really, valued my time at the athletic um and i was appreciative and i thought that the bosses were great but yet this has been the greatest career decision i've made yeah look and, and you found some territory that like i i think almost nobody else was was doing right i mean like to do um media criticism of of 
sports coverage and of the industry um, that's like not from like a dogmatic kind of predictable point of view like that, you know, um, I'm a huge fan of sports. I can go on like a rant about like why I think sports are good for society. Right. Um, mm. But it's a, it's a big business and we needed somebody like you to like kind of cover the stories that, that you are. It's also a business that's like dominated by a few very major players, one of which ESPN and I kind of used to work for and, and, yeah. you know, still have mostly positive feelings about ESPN, but it's very, very, very complicated when they're like both the leading, well, along with the athletic, um, yeah. one of the kind of two leading journalistic outlets covering sports and also benefit hugely from like rights fees and deals mm. that they have with the leagues. I mean, these conflicts are like, are very, 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 very obvious. Um, and it's a very, very <laughs> large industry. And like to have people like speak to those and the way the game is played and the, you know, the woes like Damian Lillard cryptic <laughs> <laughs> messages that are transmitted and things like that, I think is, uh, is a real service for sure. Oh, well, I appreciate you saying it. I just think it's, uh, yeah, it's a market inefficiency there. And it's funny. You tell yourself stories sometimes of, um, it's whatever the Upton Sinclair quote is that a man, it's hard for a man to realize something when his salary is dependent on, uh, his not realizing it or understanding it. And I, I remember, I think Brian Windhorst is the best NBA journalist. Uh, but I remember we did a podcast with him years ago when I was at ESPN and he started talking about what some of the agents felt and some of his conversations. And we were trying to draw more out of him. And Brian said, people don't want to hear about this. People don't want to know about this. The fans don't want to know about this. And we were deluged, deluged, whatever, uh, remunerated, remunerated with yeah. just <laughs> emails for people going, I want more. I want more of that. I want more of whatever Brian was saying, whatever he was saying about those agents and what's going on behind those scenes. I want more of it. And I, I'm not accusing Brian of this, but I think sometimes there's this inclination of, well, that's not what the market wants, but really what's happening is that's just going to be a shit show <laughs> internally to deal with and to untangle. But people, people no, want for, it. They want to know about it. And look, I'm a big, I'm a big NBA fan. Right. Um, and you like kind of learn, it's good practice for like political journalism, but you learn to like kind of translate and decode, right. That like, with Woj, um, things are kind of coded in, I think, frankly, often a very obvious and clumsy way, right? Um, with Windhorse, they're kind of coded in a more self-effacing, self-aware, clever way, but still kind of like coded, right? I think Zach Lowe, um, very mild coding where you can kind of figure out kind of what is a source claim and what is his opinion, Um mm. You had, I think, Kevin O'Connor on last week. He was pretty uncoded, right? He's kind of like yeah. speaking more, um, more directly, and that's kind of what I aim for a little bit. Is to um, with having the newsletter is to try to like um, speak more directly and and not the kind of like some somewhat coded language that you have to use on Twitter because you're trying to like calibrate getting a message across that you think is true without getting burned too much for it. Right. I think with mm. the larger word counts, longer word counts on, on a blog or a newsletter. Um, and the fact that you can take more time to like kind of 
craft the language to like say what you mean, right? Um, and say it pithily and, and well, I think that's a better equilibrium. I would certainly agree with that. Um, on, I mean, I just, I, I brought it up before, but I'm still so curious. I mean, what is it like to have this giant brand that you built that you are not affiliated with that's going to be putting out content that will be inherently controversial? I mean, have you girded yourself for this? Do you have a process for it? I mean, one thing I should say is like, it's not, it's not just that they kind of got rid of me and then everything else is the same and they hired this new guy, right? They got rid of 70% of the staff. They got rid of all the mm. senior editors, all the senior managers, the large majority of all the graphic design people and interactive journalists who were wonderful. They basically entirely killed um, the sports staff, right? And so like, so, you know, to have a product that's like just not going to be as robust a version of what it once was on top of the fact that like I'm publicly record saying I don't like the new guy they hired Morris very much. Right. I think he's partisan. Um, hmm. I worry in some ways like least about his like modeling skills. Right. I think, I think as a modeler, he's, he's decent. Right. Um, it's a hard thing actually. Um, but the fact that you kind of like, I felt like I, I, um, has spent a lot of time in my life, especially recently kind of like trying to like untie the kind of like partisan side from like the, you know, just trying to like do my best to like give you an accurate forecast that you could bet on kind of side. And then like, now it kind of feels like it's getting like a little bit tied back together, but like, look, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, this whole notion of like a founder driven business, I, I think, I think Bill Simmons does it pretty well at um at the ringer but like mm. it's inherently like kind of a you know in some ways i think it was maybe on my part like a very like i don't know arrogant idea <laughs> from the start that like because what do you want you want to you want to hire a staff of a few dozen people and like do you want them to kind of echo what you would say well mm. not really no that would be weird right do you want them to disagree with you well if your kind of name gets tied to everything, it's kind of like a little bit, a little bit weird as well. Right. And kind of like over time at 538, I became, you know, less and less involved in the editorial process from where it was like half my job to kind of 0% kind of a step function going down. We were ESPN for 10 years, kind of going down like every year, pretty much. Um, and there was kind of like a little bit of like a pluralistic view that emerged like, okay, um, Nate's going to go uh, on Twitter and criticize some aspect of COVID policy that we are defending in this article at 538. And there was kind of like mm. a, a agreement to like get along. I mean, they are and were all like a lot of very conscientious and nice people. Believe it or not, I can be like a nice conscientious person at times. Um, <laughs> and so kind of people got along well personally, and that probably, probably covered some um, philosophical disagreements. Um, but no, kind of like, it's very hard to be both uh, an editor and like kind of a, a the lead writer or talent or one of the lead writers or talents. Um, that's a very hard thing to balance. And I think if I had to run it back, um, then we would have said, Nate, you are the talent here, right? You have 
no experience really as an editor. Um, <laughs> I mean, technically I did have some in like the high school newspaper. Okay. But no yeah. worthwhile experience as, as an editor. Right. Um, you maybe actually have some experience, like kind of like on the business side, like back at baseball perspectives, I helped that business to grow. Um, but so Nate, here are the things that you do really well. And like, um, and let's kind of surround you with like, here is another three or four kind of key people to take these things that you do well and turn out, find out how to turn them into like a viable business. Right. You know, I think both me and kind of like, um, my kind of bosses at ESPN, who I like a lot personally, like neither one of us kind of a did that or B kind of really like invested very much in the business side of things at all. Um, mm. This was an era of ESPN where Grantland was still intact. Um, an era where people thought ESPN was like the best business in the history of the world, mm. right? Apart from maybe some like monopoly in some like communist country or something, <laughs> right? Where um, yeah. they were enormously profitable. They had what they thought was a very safe set of revenue streams. I mean, sports is a very robust category in general. Um, they thought that the cable business was very robust, maybe I think to their detriment in the long run. Um, so kind of when, when I was brought into ESPN, they were pretty explicit about the fact that like, we don't really care very much whether you make a profit because the absolute amount of expenditures is small relative to our gargantuan mm. product and the brand halo effect that you produce will be worth it. Or if it isn't, I don't care because I'm John Skipper, right? And I'm a guy mm. who is a literary guy that kind of also kind of fell backward into like being like a sports media executive mm. when he's like, you know, not your typical like ESPN kind of corporate grinder type, right? And I have the wherewithal to invest in projects that I really like. Um, whereas ironically, I think, you know, both Grantland and 538 had very loyal audiences, had frankly, like very, I'm being honest here, like affluent audiences with like high willingness to pay and would yeah. have made very good subscription businesses as we're seeing now with oh, like yeah. with Substack. And so it's kind of like a, a shame that wasn't tried. Um, but once it was in the original DNA of 538 at Disney that like, this is a loss leader it's nobody's job to really make money on this brand. And that's okay because we can afford to do it for strategic reasons. Like that's very hard to undo. And like when I um, renewed with ABC um, five years ago, in some ways a better strategic fit, we've always gotten more of our politic traffic from politics than sports. So that part is fine. Right. Um, but it was with the knowledge that really wasn't going to change. Right. They would put like a little bit mm. more window dressing, around trying to make a profit, but they didn't really, it wasn't really anybody's, no one's job was on the line because of that. And like kind of miraculously, we kind of survived long enough until finally you have massive, um, massive uh, headwinds at the Disney corporation where they have to make massive, very severe layoffs. And like, I can't really blame them for um, laying off most people in a division that they weren't even trying to, to make money from, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. becomes like a inevitability and it's like an inevitability that I kind of knowingly signed up for twice, right? Like knowing it was like never gonna like, never gonna be like, 
run as like a profit making business. Um, and, and that was great in some ways. We had like a lot of editorial freedom to explore, um, you know, but like it, it leads to sacrifices in, in other ways. Uh, I mean, I totally agree with you. It, if it had happened at the right time, subscription model for 538 would have been, I think, incredibly lucrative. And some of these publications were able to hit it at the right time. And some of them seem to miss the boat, you know, New Yorker, New York Times, they hit it at the right time. Sports Illustrated should have been an obvious one, for instance, and, and that never happened. And then, well, the athletic moved in and they basically did what Sports Illustrated had missed out on on doing. Let's uh, maybe do a little palate cleanser to end this, to to, to round this out. Um, I still can't stop thinking about that panel that you did with Bill James. I, I didn't. <laughs> I knew of the legend of Bill James, obviously. I knew nothing of the personality of Bill James. I would listen to a talk sports radio show with the two of you guys, where you would be saying more of the opinions that align with my own. <laughs> And Bill James would just be, I wish, I mean, it's on YouTube, but he's got a weird talent, Nate, for saying something that on its face is totally crazy. But then you go, well, but maybe, <laughs> but maybe, well, you know, but it's amazing. He's he's cranky and proud of it. And he's also like a, like a very creative off kilter writer. He's a very, very good writer. Very, very good writer. He's written books about things that aren't sports actually, believe it or not. He wrote a, book about like true crime, I think, um, a few years ago. And so no, Bill is like a, a sweet guy. Um, and, and a funny guy who like, doesn't have like a lot of fucks to give at this point <laughs> in his <laughs> career. Right. He'll be the, you know, the main conference room at Sloan is named after him. And like, he'll kind of like, um, forever be a legend and is, is taking advantage of that status by his kind of elder statesman status by like, by letting it all hang out a little bit. Also being backstage with Bill. Like, I think he like, like show up to the panel like about a minute and a half after it was supposed to start, you know? So he kind of like, <laughs> uh, he's kind of like a poker player, actually kind of like march to their own, own beat a little bit, right? They're going to kind of show up when they, when they show up, I think. Um, but no, you know, maybe, uh, you should invite Bill on if, if he'll come. Oh, that would be fun. One of the things that Bill said on this panel, I wrote it down was the NBA has the worst athletes of any pro sport. He just yeah, dropped that. <laughs> No, but I understood. I understood where he was coming from. Is his? He didn't really tease it out, but the argument was basically, I think, that height is the biggest selection pressure, and it's an overwhelming selection pressure. So, if that's not incorporated into your general sense of athleticism, then maybe you could make it. I, look, I'm not with the argument, but I'm just giving an example of this sort of totally contrarian thing that makes you go, "No," and then you think, oh, "Okay, I can kind of see how he got there." Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think sometimes having like 10% more of a filter might might help. But no, I know what you mean. But doesn't that also mean that like the short NBA players are like the best athletes of all time? Is like Spud yes. Webb like the best athlete in the history of... they tend of, uh, to be. It, yeah. They tend to be more driven. So maybe that particular take could use some some refinement. But yeah, there is a lot that you were saying up there. The, the thing to go out on is um, I'm interested in your position that there's too much randomness in the playoffs of certain sports because I feel it. You said, I wouldn't say prophetically because it was just the odds that the Bruins at that time had had this historic season. They were world beating. We were in Boston. Everybody was wearing a 
Bruins sweater. Yes, that's what they say in hockey, sweater. But ultimately, they did not win, and that's a problem. And Bill was arguing with you and saying people want the randomness. I am totally with you. I can't get into hockey. Yeah. I'm not going to invest in what feels like a bunch of coin flips. What I want to know is, how would you solve it for hockey and or for baseball if you think that's too random as well? I mean, hockey is in large part because of like the salary cap, right? I mean, mm. obviously there's like a lot of randomness in hockey. I kind of grew up, probably watched more hockey in my life, at least live than any other sport. I grew up going to Michigan State University college hockey games, right? And like, you know, there is a lot of puck luck in hockey for sure. Um, but also the fact that you have like a very strict salary cap, right? Um, the 90s Red Wings when I was growing up, were dominant because they spent a lot more money than anybody else, right? The 1970s Canadians or the 1980s Oilers were dominant, dominant teams that like did routinely win much of the time, right? Time after time, the early 80s Islanders in like a kind of pre-salary cap era where um, you could kind of have more of a monopoly on player movement. And so like, I'm not saying it's good for the economics of the sport, but like maybe to make the cap a little bit more flexible, in the NHL, where now, by the way, guys are like are getting substantially underpaid relative to the other big sports increasingly now. Um, baseball, it's it's tough, right? Apart from like, you know, I am not sure I like ever expanding the number of playoff rounds. Like maybe go back to like the regular season being meaningful where you have, you know, six teams that make the playoffs and not and not 14 or whatever it is. Um, or I guess it's 12 now. Um, like, uh, I mean, there are also things you can like give teams like like ghost wins no sport has mm. tried that recently i don't think right but maybe if you like win your division you get like kind of like one ghost win maybe if you win division by x number of games you get like two ghost wins right and then finally gets the mm. world series and then and then we're back to like some neutral playing field but like that's what you would have to do i mean baseball is just two fairly good baseball teams it's just going to be like way too random and like i don't know i mean again in a world where people's attention is more episodic, um, if you're kind of a casual fan, right, um, to know that, hey, the Warriors are really good and the LeBron years, the Cavaliers are really good, um, you know, wherever Kevin Durant is going, they'll be really good, right? And, like, the fact that you can, like, kind of – or the NFL, right, um, – that most of the quarterbacks at least are on most of the same teams and teams have like nice little five to six year runs of being pretty good. Right. Make the championship game a few times, potentially like for episodic fans, that seems easier to follow than a sport like baseball where it is 10 players and be you know, the standings. like these are standings are like a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. Right. But like the Yankees and Red Sox, I thought was financially very good for <laughs> very good for baseball. Right. Um, to have like two dominant hegemonic teams and then like, and then one or two kind of upstarts or usurpers. Right. And then that changes after every five years or so, like that to me seems like a better, like fan equilibrium than, um, yeah. where, where the champion in hockey or, or baseball has like a, you know, 10% chance of repeating these days, the way the sports are structured. Like that seems to me like, um, not optimal. No, you don't want it to just feel random. It needs to feel like an accomplishment, not just not just pure luck. Uh, so that's why I definitely come down your side of things. I thought that was the last question, but actually this is the last uh, question, which is 
uh, your excellent uh, breakdown of the dissolution of my Pac-12, Nate. Uh, you 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 seem almost happy that uh, my my Pac-12 is getting eviscerated to bolster your sense of Midwestern sports supremacism out there in the Big Ten. My question yeah. is, how do you sleep at night, sir? That's my question. I mean, look, we in the West care way more about sports than you guys on. On the West Coast, right? I was in yeah. um, in L.A. when the Rams won a Super Bowl in L.A. I was not at the game. Um, I went to some, like, party, right? And then we were staying in West Hollywood, right? And, like, afterward, I'm like, I'm going to go um, roam the streets of West Hollywood. And there are, of course, going to be, like, bands of, like, Rams <laughs> fans super excited to have won a Super Bowl in their city and, like, nobody with any like kind of football affiliation whatsoever anywhere in West Hollywood. Granted, like not the best place in LA, like find football fans for various reasons, probably, but like, but like the level of enthusiasm that you have um, in the South, the Midwest and the Northeast, actually the Northeast more for pro sports than for college sports. Right. Um, people in those parts of the country, like grew up with those teams. There's much less migration. Right. Actually, the one place that's a pretty good sports town is, is Vegas. Um, mm. Going to like Knights games feels more like a Midwestern sports experience because they were the first team there um, because it kind of legitimized Vegas as like a pro sports market. Um, that's a really great experience, like quite knowledgeable hockey fans who are really into the Knights. So I'm happy they won a championship. But the rest of the West Coast, where I've spent a lot of time in my life, uh, it just really, really dim sports fandom lights compared to compared to the Midwest. Yeah, well, they'll do some pro sports, but the college sports avidity, as you said, is lacking, which is almost ironic considering that it's a very high college attainment area, but there's almost that's inversely correlated for whatever reason. Uh, I can't remember. You listed all the TV ratings for the different Pac-12 teams, but USC seemed like a pocket of the Midwest in terms of fandom within the West Coast. I remember... um, when USC, when I was in college at, at Cal, when they would play Cal, their fans would come up and they would just roam the streets like the uh, Rams fans that weren't. And they would just yell at us and taunt us. And it felt almost like they didn't understand why we weren't matching their energy. They almost seemed disappointed that we had nothing really to give back to them um, because we were more like the rest of the West Coast. And we were looking at them like they were the the, the Black Knight and Monty Python, just raring to go. And we just didn't have the same energy to respond in kind with. But yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. It's still, as you were indicating, it feels like the Pac-12 should exist, even if perhaps the avidity wasn't uh, where it typically is for a major sports uh, conference. I'm sad about it, Nate, I would say. No, and, and look, L.A., I think, is different than the rest of the West Coast. I mean, L.A. is kind of like very much like a, a middle class, diverse, you know, racially diverse, obviously, extremely racially diverse, but like a middle class, diverse town that kind of draws people in from all over the country and all over the world. And I think it's like a little bit um, more normy than the rest of the West Coast. And therefore, like, you know, the rest of the U.S. is very sports crazed. And so L.A., um, not the Rams, but for for the Dodgers, for USC, certainly for the Lakers, right? Um, so selectively, it's a pretty pretty good sports town, I think. Um, yeah. I, although even like Seattle, you know, I'm sure Seattle's good for Seahawks and Mariner. I'm you know, so maybe I'm kind of like 
you know, I guess there are Portland Timbers fans out there, but like, but like sports is still a big deal. But like, if it's like 30% less a big deal for pro sports and like 50% less for college sports, like that shows up in the economics at the end of the day. Um, and means that like, you know, the Washington States and Oregon States, um, the cows when they're not a competitive football program or the Colorados, right? Like that's quite a bit of dead weight in a conference. And I, you know, look, it's everyone kind of acting rationally in a complicated game where there's like no kind of, no, there is no master commissioner czar, right? Um, And, and I don't know, as a big 10 fan though, um, As a Big Ten fan, grew up in Lansing, Michigan. I like it, and the Pac, uh, Pac Ten, Pac Twelve always felt like our, you know, our like our younger brother conference. Um, <laughs> so, so we're happy to have you return home. Well, there you go, Nate Silver, drinking our milkshake. Uh, I, <laughs> I have a sense of what you might want to plug on the way out, but maybe you could, in addition to plugging the fantastic Silver Bulletin, uh, which I love so much give people a little bit more of a tease and sense of this book coming down the pike. Yeah. So the book uh, is about gambling and risk kind of divided almost into the the first half, which I'm um, almost done with kind of starts out um, in the poker industry, kind of works its way through the history of Las Vegas and kind of casino gambling um, gets really in the mechanics of sports betting. I've talked to like some of the best sports bettors in the world been, um, also kind of like very behind the scenes with operators who probably told me way more than they should about kind of how the Mm -hmm. industry really works. Um, The second half is about, about risk. So it kind of starts out in the world of um, venture capital. I've talked to a lot of prominent people in that field gets into existential risk. So AI, nuclear war risk. um, And then finally kind of looks at like progress in American society and kind of why we are such a risk-taking nation as a whole. Um, I know when you kind of talk about it like that, it seems like it's it's this kind of incoherent, um, very overly large idea, which might be kind of half true, but like, but it kind of stems from like kind of working through kind of my network and people that like I have contacts with and like all these people in different fields are kind of the same, kind of the same people, right? Like the AI people are the same types Mm -hmm. of nerds that are like really in, to poker, right? The mm. VCs and the way they network is like not that different than the way the best sports bettors might form a network to get reliable information and try to beat the market. So I hope it will cohere together in a really big way. It'll be out um, either spring or summer or fall next year, depending on when I finish it. <laughs> um, in the meantime, uh, Silver Bulletin is my Substack. Um, for now, it's free because I um, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in three months. We are definitely talking to lots of media partners of various kinds. Um, but uh, sign up. I'll have an item hopefully once a week or so. Don't want to overpromise. Um, it does help if you subscribe. That way, I have like a mailing list that I can I can use. People have we have very high open rates. Like 70 percent people open up the newsletter, so they're finding it Ooh. useful so far. So um, so yeah, sign up. I'll give you good free content, and then I'll upsell you at some point. In the future. Oh, all I know is that book sounds fascinating. I demand a galley copy. um, Of course. 
would love to have you back to discuss all of it when it does come out and one of the three seasons that that you uh that you named nate this has been fantastic thanks so much you're doing great stuff and i i can't wait to read what you're putting out there next cool man i'll talk to you soon